This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Anna Sale. This is a public service announcement. She's back. She is, of course, Beyonce. And this week, the Queen Bee dropped her new album, Renaissance. So if you have a Beyonce fan in your life, you may want to heed TikTok user Kaylin Allen's advice. It's a Renaissance baby, so don't call me. Don't text me. She's going to change the world again. I'm one of one. I'm number one. I'm the only one. I hope you're ready to dance. If the pandemic was marked by music that made you want to cozy up in a cardigan and chill out alone, Beyonce is declaring it's time to sweat it out with your lovers and friends. Keep him addicted. Lies on his lips. I lick it. The whole album, billed as Renaissance Act One, is a tribute to music that makes you want to move. From house to funk to techno to ballroom. There are few musicians who can make the world stop when they drop new music. But Beyonce for decades has had her grip on the zeitgeist. This week, she's what everyone was talking about, the unexpected album leak two days ago, the dedication of the album to her late gay uncle, and its invitation for all of us to find some release on the dance floor. To break all this down, I spoke with Joey Guerra, a music critic at the Houston Chronicle, Beyonce's hometown, of course, and Dan Runcy, the founder of the hip-hop business site, Trapital. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to just just capture that first feeling you had when listening to the tracks. Dan, what did you feel? I felt a release. I felt like I could have the freedom to be able to go express myself. And I think Beyonce was able to have an album that can make you say, finally, yes, here's a song like this that I haven't heard in a little while from someone that you respect so much. This album and these songs I know will be played for a while and I'm here for it. Joey, for you, what was your first reaction? I think there are so many moments here that when I first listened to it immediately just struck me. The opening track, I'm That Girl, um, which was co-produced by Mike Dean. When you listened, what did you hear? Oh my gosh. Um, I think first and foremost for me, kind of what we heard with Break My Soul, which was sort of these references and these allusions to 90s house music, 90s ballroom culture, you know, queer queer people of color communities who really sort of championed this sound, this genre. That's kind of what I heard in that song when I first listened to it. I love sort of also the the slow and languid kind of rhythms that she uses through a lot of this. It reminded me of the chopped and screwed sound from Houston. It just is really different in a lot of ways from anything she's done. But at the same time, for me at least, growing up with 90s house music, going out to clubs every weekend and dancing, 
that's kind of where it took me when I listened to it. Dan, you are also a big Beyonce fan, and you are a student of how she's responded to and shaped the music business and its commerce. Any choices you noticed listening, creative choices that you thought were interesting from a business perspective? One thing that always stuck out to me about Beyonce is how she releases music that captures the moment that we're in. The pandemic has been going on for a while. COVID's still here. People have been locked up inside. Having music like this, in many ways, is such a shift from so much of the music I think we've heard in the streaming era. I think streaming slowed down a lot of the BPMs and the beats and the rhythms of music. So her being able to, in many ways, bounce back to have this love letter to the 90s that I think Renaissance really is, stands out in a way of clearly what era she grew up in and a lot of the music that she connected with. You mentioned there that in the streaming era, music actually slowed down. The beats got more just like we were listening to slower music. Is that so? Yeah, I think that a lot of the sound, if you think about that Travis Scott sound that really Mm -hmm. got so popular so much of it lended itself more to on-demand playing as opposed to some of the music before streaming really blew up where you're thinking more directly about the radio hits or you're thinking more directly about what will work in a club. So now you have this other medium. Well, not that at-home listening wasn't necessarily there, but because so much of it is on-demand, what can you cater to? And I think that we saw streaming shift to that in a way But I think Beyonce is likely responding in another way to be like, hey, I think my fans kind of want the opposite now. We've all been inside. We can all play the music on demand. Let's have something fun. Let's give people those rooftop vibes that they want to have and dance and let loose a little bit. Yeah, come on out into the streets and dance together. Are there particular tracks that you listen to that made you feel that vibe? Yeah, there were several of them. I think that Church Girl was one that I thought about because it clearly hits something that I think she could likely relate to, that feeling of, yes, you're going to church, you're still trying to, you know, do the family thing, but you're still going to go out on Saturday night. Or even her using interpolation of different songs, she had Drop It Like a Thotty in there. You know, you could clearly trace that back to back that thing up with Juvenile and Uh the the Hot Boys and everyone from Cash Money. And that's also a song that she's referenced to as well with what she did with Homecoming and what she did with her Coachella performance. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk about what the album title Renaissance could mean for Beyonce and for a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. 
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Embedded podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. The other thing I think about a lot with Beyonce releases is this is where we often find out about her inner life. Did you learn anything new that you didn't know before you listened to these new tracks? I think, you know, I always knew that there was a part of her that felt very endeared or connected to the queer community, but... On this album, for me, I really, really felt that connection. Mm -hmm. There's that spoken intro that she samples from Moonraker. Please do not be alarmed. Remain calm. Do not attempt to leave the dance floor. And that takes me back to another song, Divas to the Dance Floor, Please, which I just remember when that song would play, the dance floor would go crazy and everybody would come to the dance floor and dance. Divas to the dance floor, please. Divas to the dance floor, please. It's just those really specific moments. I don't know that I've ever felt such specific kind of references listening to an album. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Dan, you mentioned this in your first answer, but I want to pull it out a little bit more Um this is, of course, Beyonce's first solo studio album since 2016 when Lemonade came out. And that masterpiece included both reflections on her marriage and about the state of America. I was kind of listening for more literal political commentary. Like I, I clicked on the track, I clicked on to listen to America Has a Problem. And I was like, wait, this song isn't about literally how America has a problem. It's about much different things. It's it's sort of Same. layered with different things. Um, but then you look at a song like Move, which is this expression of like, give me space. I'm with my girls and we all need space. And it's sort of this declaration, which is not new for Beyonce, but of self-love and about centering her experience and centering the experience of people like her, which is political commentary in this very joyful way. Exactly. I think she was able to still weave it in, even if it was more of a subtle way, because even Move itself, as important as the themes are, it still is a up-tempo song that fits within this album. But I think it's probably the song that feels the most classic Beyonce, if you will. I have a question for both of you. Why do you think she named this album Renaissance? Thinking about Renaissance and what it means, especially when you're thinking about the Harlem Renaissance, which comes to mind first and foremost, thinking about what's most connected to her and maybe just thinking about the revival and the spirit of art being created and being 
celebrated with people that are ready to come together in this moment and the fact that these can normally happen after times of frustrations or challenges that are happening in a particular community, her being able to be like, hey, this was a tough period, let's come together and have a celebratory moment. I think that in a lot of ways, especially when I see that, when I saw the album cover too, and you hear Break My Soul, it's like, okay, she wants to be able to set the tone. She wants to be able to put things forward. And if this can be a check mark along that way, thinking about even if we look a hundred years ago, when the last time there was a pandemic, you have the roaring twenties that had happened after. Uh-huh. It follows that boom bust type of mentality where when there was a period of challenges, normally things do change and come together. So if she's putting her stamp on maybe that this 2020s time period here that we're moving into can be its own cultural renaissance and she can plant her flag as being part of that. I mean, everything Dan said, I absolutely agree with. I think, you know, catastrophe, celebration, catastrophe, celebration, right? And, you know, this feels like it's musically, socially, culturally, it's the dawning of a new day, you know, in in the world of Beyonce. And I do think we hear that in the music. I think, again, you know, referencing back this moment in time in the 90s with queer culture and house music, you know, that was, I think, for a lot of people, a moment that could also be described as a renaissance, right? I mean, she's reminding us of that time. She's reminding us to laugh. She's reminding us to celebrate. She's reminding us to take your problems to the dance floor, which is a line we've heard in lots of songs, right? Um, but yeah, I think I think it's fully reflected in in everything that you hear on this album. Absolutely. And she's told us this in her own words. I want to read an excerpt of a statement she released on this album. She said, Creating this album allowed me a place to dream and to find escape during a scary time for the world. It allowed me to feel free and adventurous in a time when little else was moving. My intention was to create a safe place, a place without judgment, a place to be free of perfectionism and overthinking, a place to scream, release, feel freedom. It was a beautiful journey of exploration. I think from from where she says a safe space on, that just perfectly to me encapsulates the album and it perfectly again encapsulates I think that's why that's why so many people love the 90s and there's so much throwback to the 90s in terms of you know tv shows and music and fashion because that was that was a moment when people were celebrating and for me you know as a gay man going to clubs dancing to music that was a safe space it was a space where I didn't have to worry about you know, who was around me or who was watching me or who saw me holding hands or who saw me, you know, acting too quote unquote gay. You know, it, it, it just, I can't stress enough how much this album really reflects that moment for me as a, just as a person. Mm -hmm. And she references that also in another part of the statement. She says, thank you to all the pioneers who originate culture, to all of the fallen angels whose contributions have gone unrecognized for far too long. Do you see that as a reference to queer people who've made the music that she's referencing and the AIDS epidemic? Yes, absolutely. That's the first thing I thought of when I read that was, you know, the people who really created this sound, created this movement. And like you said, people who we lost to HIV and AIDS. I think that's definitely who she's referencing here. It's nice to hear something so beautiful after the leak. Doesn't sound like it's fueled by sour grapes. (laughs) (laughs) Still sounds joyful. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I guess, uh, you know, 
all, maybe not all is forgiven, but you know, we're moving past the leak. The album's out. Now we can hear it. Let's just, let's just forget about that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of the leak for you, Joey, you're a music critic. You're also a fan. You're also sort of tracking how the culture responds to Beyonce releases. Was there part of you that was a little, was there a sadness that the leak happened, that there it, it prevented us from having this collective moment of all consuming it at the same time at midnight Eastern time when the when the album was supposed to be released and you can, you know, where social media would be lighting up in real time while people were responding to it. Um, did you feel a loss at not having that collective moment? I did a little bit, you know, because like you, like you said, you know, everybody was sort of waiting for this moment, waiting to hear this music. And just the thought of everybody hearing this at the same time it's it's just a nice it's a nice feeling you know that feeling of community that feeling of everybody doing the same thing all at once seeing all the tweets about you know, oh my god i'm listening to this people live tweeting their reactions to the tracks the beehive made a very forceful effort to uh report the leaks and tell people not to listen but i had no clue i think i didn't find out until about an hour after and i looked on twitter and i saw that Beyonce leak was trending or something like that. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And also, where is it? Thanks again to Trapital's Dan Runcie and the Houston Chronicle's Joey Guerra. Renaissance is out now. Coming up, it's been a minute producer Liam McBain and culture writer Crispin Long on why they're obsessed with straight dating shows. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity and tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Line, We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We all have our guilty pleasures, especially when it comes to TV. The shows we somehow stumble upon and just can't quit. One of our producers here at It's Been a Minute, he can't stop thinking about one type of show in particular. Hello, Liam. Hi, Anna. (laughs) What is your can't quit TV? 
Okay, so you know this already because I can't, you know, I've been talking about it nonstop, but like I'm obsessed with... Tell the people. Yes, I'm obsessed with reality dating shows. That's my truth. Like I have an obsession with them. Okay, we welcome this information. You are safe here (laughs) describing that. For you, what are your shows? Okay, well, let me tell you, these are not airing right now, but you know, the Netflix ones like Love is Blind and The Ultimatum, there's just something about them that is intensely addictive but right now i've been watching the latest season of love island which is great because they have new episodes out every day they just love to feed the people and like i i watch it every day like i watch my love island on my break today i'm not even kidding whoa wait every day you don't skip a day no i don't skip a day why would i skip a day (laughs) if you were boyfriend and girlfriend i wouldn't even try no 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 we're not like boyfriend and girlfriend no you know, and I'm also, I just started watching, I watched like the first episode of the latest entry in the Bachelor universe, the Bachelorettes, plural, mm-hmm. that came out like very recently. I'm admittedly not a usual member of the Bachelor Nation, but I'm about to be, so. <laughs> this is definitely not the normal situation because we do have two Bachelorettes. Do you think it's going to be two separate group dates or are they both going to be on one? I cannot prepare for So, Liam, I dabble in reality dating shows. I've seen a few, but why do you like them so much? What makes them so compelling? Listen, I've been asking myself the same question. <laughs> Because, like, in my day-to-day life, I have no real interest in what straight people are doing. But watching these shows, I need to know everything. I am so in their business. So I called up a fellow reality dating fan to figure out why. Well, right now, I do intend very soon to jump into the first season of Bachelorette with two Bachelorettes um, Mm -hmm. that just started. Uh, I'm very fascinated with what will happen with them. Um, you know, I hope they kiss. Uh, I, <laughs> I, so so Me that's too. what I'm looking forward to right now. Yeah. That is Crispin Long. They wrote about all of this recently in an article in Astro Magazine. So I talked to them about what these shows say about our society's obsession with marriage and why we can't get enough of them. So like me, I know you also get sucked into a lot of reality dating shows. What was your first entry into the genre? So I first watched a full season when um, The Bachelorette had the first Black Bachelorette, Rachel Lindsay, who was a star. And it just felt so satisfying to watch people kind of like admit how this is supposed to work and admit that like... They think everyone has to find marriage to be happy for the most part. And then Love is Blind really kind of hit another sweet spot for me because it's, you know, it's even a more exaggerated version of the kind of, you know, bald desperation for marriage where you commit to somebody and you become engaged to them without ever having seen them before, for one thing. And I just loved watching people kind of, you know, talk to these people and come up with a fantasy in their mind of who they want this person to be. Mm. And then as they actually meet in person, there's inevitably kind of a clash between that fantasy and the actual person in front of them. And they're kind of, you know, trying to persuade themselves because they're so invested, like, this has to work. I don't really, I don't know. I mean, there's no, like, there's nothing wrong with him. It's just, it's not something I can really put my finger on, I guess. 
And I just found it really satisfying to watch that play out um, in, in a somewhat perverse manner, too. <laughs> like, I know. It's like... It's so delicious, but, like, not, like, kind of in, like, a gross way. Um, I mean, like, okay, I'm a gay trans guy. I have no personal interest in the project of heterosexuality, which, like, you know, maybe I would loosely define here as a compulsion towards marriage and kids and the nuclear family as, Mm -hmm. like, the only path towards an imagined belonging or happiness. Mm -hmm. And I'd even like, you know, I'd argue gay marriage is somewhat tied to this project as well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I know you're not invested in all that either personally. So like why watch, you know, some of these like incredibly straight shows? Like what makes it like kind of compelling for you? Yeah, I mean, I think just kind of being in opposition to those values makes them compelling to watch. There's a kind of schadenfreude of like, oh, I've disinvested from you know, an attachment to marriage and the nuclear family and like, see, it's playing out badly for these people. But also for me personally, you know, I'm someone who came out pretty late in life. I, you know, spent basically until I was about 30 years old doing these sort of, you know, heterosexual relationships and then sort of blew up my life and decided to live by an entirely different set of values and not prioritize romantic relationships in the same way and not have marriage be like the end goal for me um, in order to enter adulthood. And it's, you know, it's satisfying to go back and watch the ways that that can go awry with other people um, and, and the ways that people feel this very real pressure that I once felt. Um, but also, you know, I have this kind of ridiculous sense of superiority because I'm like, oh, you can't fool me. I've now escaped heterosexuality. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, these people are who I might be if I didn't transition, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, hats off to people who are happily married. Like, I have no beef with them. Oh, yeah, people Hope you're having a good time. Um, But, you know, like, the very, like, the pressure that you have to marry or that you have to have a family to be happy or to, like, you know, enter adulthood... Like you said, there's kind of like a perverse kind of interest in something I feel like I kind of escaped mm-hmm. and hope other people can escape too if that's right for them. Like, I feel like it might feel a little bit strange for me personally that I'm into this stuff. But like, you know, these shows are incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. The Bachelor garners millions of viewers per episode. Americans are clearly buying what these shows are selling. So I thought I'd ask like, what exactly are they selling? What are the values? I mean, the values, especially kind of within the universe of the show, are, of course, getting married is one of the pinnacles of happiness. People should get married. People should want to get married. Um, And then, you know, more specifically, the way it plays out on these shows is uh, the, the sort of ideal arc, right, is you meet someone, you immediately have feelings for that one person. Those feelings don't change. If they do change, you're doing something wrong. Um, I mean, I think the most extreme example of this uh, is like every episode of Married at First Sight. (laughs) And a team of experts, quote unquote, have picked, um, you know, these pairings after doing interviews with all of these potential people who want to be on the show. And then they pick someone... They get married to them. It's legally binding. They cannot get it annulled. 
and then they have a little chat, you know, <laughs> like a strange wedding. But what happens on that show is the experts, um, they really coach them toward, you know, you have already committed to this marriage, so it is your responsibility to do the work that needs to be done in order to preserve the marriage. What are you expecting from your relationship? And what, what, what do you want from him? I want him to be happy. Why, why is that a request? For, uh, tell me more about that. Because if he's not happy, it, it kind of affects me because I live with you. You're my partner. But they're sort of treated like if they can't become attracted to this person that they may not be attracted to, um, then that's kind of a, a moral failing on their part and they haven't tried hard enough. Right. And like, what do you feel when you see someone failing to connect with the person they're with? Are you like trying again and again to find that with someone and just not getting there? Like, you know, that desperation there. Like, I feel, mm-hmm. I feel so much empathy to you. I do, yeah. I really, yeah, I feel their disappointment and just, I don't know, all of the pressure that they're under from other people that they've imposed on themselves. And I think, too, you know, from my perspective, a lot of it feels so unnecessary to me. Like, Mm -hmm. I wish they had more of an analysis or just someone would tell them, like, it's okay, you don't have to get married. You're not a failure if you didn't get married. Um, And I think, too, it's a failure to have felt the right things in many cases. You know, their, their disappointment is like, I was supposed to feel a sense of love and connection that I didn't feel and that must maybe in some way be my fault. And, you know, I just want to tell them, like, you really can't control your feelings to a certain extent. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to decide that you're in love with somebody because they happen to be the person stuck in front of you in this game. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are queer dating reality shows, like... They exist. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of them. (laughs) Um, And I've seen recently that they just wrapped season two of The Ultimatum featuring an all-queer cast. You've seen The Ultimatum, right? Yes, yes, I've seen the first season. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know, it's a show where one person in an existing couple gives the other an ultimatum, either marry me or move on, like we're done. And the show has them date other people in other couples to see if the grass is greener elsewhere. I definitely thought giving Jake the ultimatum would bring us together. It is doing the complete opposite. But, you know, doing that with, like, an all-queer cast, like, (laughs) the show is still very much about marriage. Does the queerness of a show like that, you know, change the core aspirations or values? I think you can live your life according to traditional heterosexual values while also, you know, being gay or being queer. Um, you know, not that you, like, have to reject everything, but there is this this sense that, like, there was a movement for queer liberation throughout the 20th century, kind of culminating uh, in many ways, like, in the, in the 80s and 90s, and then a moment where people came in and kind of threw their weight around in the movement who were really invested in gay marriage and who wanted Mm -hmm. to assimilate to these values. And yeah, I think if if you put, you know, queer people on a dating show, often a lot of times they may 
kind of have that set of beliefs about their own life, that the next step for them is to get married, that they need to, you know, play the same game that the straight people are playing on the other reality shows, right? Like, the goal is is total commitment, and the goal is stability. And I'm curious to see on the ultimatum, like, who are these people? <laughs> like, uh, like what what types of gays are on the ultimatum? <laughs> I'm extremely curious to know. Um, could there be like a queer or trans real reality dating show that's like not invested in these same values? Like, I'm thinking about the bisexual season mm-hmm. of Are You the One that kind of comes close, or does the format make doing something differently kind of impossible? Oh yeah, I mean the bisexual the all bisexual season of Are You the One <laughs> is um iconic. Iconic. Uh the, the the messiest reality TV dating show that ever was. Um it uh, was, gives white trans masks a bad uh, but not inaccurate name. <laughs> absolutely. Kai. Oh Kai. No one here is like wiped up. Nobody here is boyfriend, girlfriend here. I'm gonna do what I want. Yeah, that, I mean, that show was interesting because I do think, I would argue that it did not replicate these values in most ways, Mm. you know, especially just because the premise of that show is like anyone could date anyone. Um, So, you know, let's put these people in a little strange bubble together and anyone can mix with anyone and we'll see what wild drama arises from that, which was an incredibly successful formula. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of, you know, there was group sex. There was all kinds of stuff, um, (laughs) which I would have predicted and was delighted to see. Like, that sort of did feel representative. Um, at, At the same time, you know, a lot of the conflicts on that show were related to the question of, I'm interested in this person. We have sort of a some kind of relationship that's romantic and or sexual between us is someone committed who is committed are we both committed but i think watching people try to negotiate on that show it created a lot of conflict but there was a sense that when people did commit to each other and it was mutual it really was chosen by them and and there was mm-hmm. a sense too that you know even if it didn't last people would be upset but that was kind of more allowed there was a lot of flexibility there. Um, if they were okay, if you were making a queer or trans dating show, like what would you want to see? Like what kind of mess or structure or just kind of oh, like wow. vibes would you want out of it that like, you know, feels different? Wow, I've never thought about this before. What about all bisexual Love Island? That would be good. Mm. Like what if it was like all bisexual, T for T, and like you win if you can convince someone to get a T for T tattoo. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think forming, you know, friendships with people would be like a nice thing to to consider winning a show. Like what if there was a show about finding your best friend, like that whole, Aww. like the Paris Hilton show. Like, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe the show is like, put a bunch of bisexuals together who are allowed to date uh, and inevitably will. 
and the winner is people who exchange friendship bracelets. I love that. I love that it takes like the focus off of commitment. You just like, you're vibing and like, you can just make a friend. And maybe they're also someone that you have romantic or sexual like relationship with, like, you know? Yeah, I would, I would definitely watch that show. Uh, thank you, Crispin, so much for coming on. Yeah, thank um, you for having really me. really love talking about reality dating with you. <laughs> yes, so much fun. Thanks again to culture writer Crispin Long and to its Been a Minute producer, Liam McBain. Crispin wrote about their love of reality dating shows in Astra Magazine earlier this month. And Liam will talk about reality dating shows with anyone who asks and some who don't. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Echianetta Oregon. Our supervising editor is Jessica Placek. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. And this week, we say goodbye to producer Chloe Weiner and editor Quinn O'Toole. They've been helping us out for a while, and it's time for them to leave us. The whole team thanks you and will miss you. And listeners, I'm saying goodbye, too. This is my last episode as your guest host on It's Been a Minute. It's been so fun. But I'm leaving you in good hands. My WNYC colleague, Tracy Hunt, will join you for the next two weeks. You can still hear me on the podcast I host, Death, Sex, and Money. Thanks for listening. I'm Anna Sale. Take care. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.